In today's episode of Love as a Business Strategy, we have an amazing and deep conversation with Catherine English, a leader at Google Cloud. She shares some raw and honest stories and insights that lead to truly insightful discussions about women in tech, inclusion in the workplace, and how DEI should be addressed today. I learned a lot, and I think you will too, so enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Love is a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. As you know, we are here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. I'm your host, Jeff Ma, and I'm a director here at Softway, a business to employee solutions company that creates products and offers services that helps build resilience and high performance company cultures. I'm joined today my good friend, Chris Petrie, Vice President at Softway. Hey, Chris, how is it going? Going well. So glad to be here today. And our special guest today is the Global Transformation Lead at Google Cloud, Catherine English. Welcome to the show, Catherine. How are you today? I'm doing great, Jeff. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Hey, good. So glad to see you again. You too. There's history here. Yeah. <laughs> history. What, uh, we love history. What's the history in brief? In brief, what's the history? Catherine was my former boss and supervisor. I don't know if we use that word anymore, boss, but um, she was my leader um, at my previous organization before Softway called Astadia. Very cool. Very cool. It's awesome to have you, Catherine. And I know you've built an, a really impressive career and hold such deep experience in, in big tech and media. I'm really excited and looking forward to picking your brain today uh, around the passions you have for innovation, as well as your perspective as being a woman in big tech and, and all kinds of topics. So I'm really excited to do that. Uh, before we begin, we have an icebreaker we like to do. And I'll make uh -oh. Chris go first. I'll give Chris the question. You'll have the same question so you have more time to think about it. Chris hates that, but we do it anyway. So Chris, icebreaker question today is, Besides your cell phone and computer, what is one piece of technology you cannot live without? My Apple TV. Um, I watch um, all the shows, <laughs> like all the shows. <laughs> <laughs> like I've seen just about everything. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so I watch a lot of content. Um, and for me, that is something that is like a must have if I'm going to be stationary somewhere like my house. Got it. Makes sense. It checks out. <laughs> Catherine, same question to you. Besides your cell phone and computer, what is one piece of technology you cannot live without? I would have to say it's my connected home. And this is not something that would have even occurred to me five or six years ago. But from uh, my doorbell, to my cameras. Uh, we recently moved to a very large uh, mixed use live work space. So we have 10,000 square feet and it would be impossible to figure out what's going on in any given room if we weren't able to use our apps to talk to each other. Um, I can tell my smart home device to start a timer, find a recipe, uh, show me how to make a festive cocktail. And I have found that I am incredibly reliant on this now. And it saves me so much time. And I feel like I have another friend in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so true. I, I didn't have an answer to this question until you just said that. And I now share the exact same answer. I didn't realize how much that was an important part of my life as well. Great answer. I know. Just okay. remember those analog days when you were leafing through cookbooks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what is even a cookbook? Okay. Let's dive, let's dive into this, Catherine. There's a lot I want to talk about, but um, let's start off from the basics. Can you give a little bit about you, your background, your experience, and your, and your passions, really? Could you just give us as much or as little as you can about yourself? I, I have taken a very unconventional journey into the world of tech. Uh, I started in journalism, in print, uh, as, as an editor uh, for a small magazine, uh, later a small newspaper, 
And in the early 90s, uh, this thing called the Internet kind of popped into my purview. I've heard of I it. randomly uh, applied to a job as a, as a website reviewer for a little-known company at the time called Point Communications, which was later acquired by Lycos. And some of you who are old enough to remember Lycos may recall that it was the first consumer-facing search engine. And I turned myself into a product manager after spending a lot of time with engineers who had fabulous ideas on how to surface the most incredible relevant uh, material possible on a web that was still very much the Wild West. Um, how to make that consumer friendly. And so without knowing anything about product management, I made the leap to product management. From there, I went to CNET. I was working on a stealth search product there that was acquired by NBC. So I made the leap to television <laughs> uh, and digital. And ultimately, that led me on a path to Microsoft and now Google. Um, so it's been... Uh, it's been an interesting ride with lots of twists and turns and none of them in a straight line. That's amazing. That's incredible. Like you've done, you've done it all. It sounds like. No, there are some things I haven't done, but uh, we'll talk about that bar pole another time. <laughs> so I'm wondering where, where, where does that path led you today? So where, where do your passions today lie? What do, what do you, what do you, find meaning in, in your current career and in your life? Well, I think my journey has been a, a, a physical manifestation of the power of change and the rapid acceleration of technological change and how that has not only impacted consumer behaviors. And I can remember, you know, back in the late 90s, thinking about how the rise of the internet had just absolutely fundamentally upended the way we look for information, uh, find information, exchange information, the impact it had on the news media, which initially was super explosive and positive, and now we've seen, you know, a roller coaster of other kinds of, of impacts and challenges to that industry. But change is constant, and our ability to respond to that change, embrace it, and lean into it as opposed to back away from it or become even further entrenched, which is what I saw happening in television, for example, um, is the thing that holds us back from progress. And that, too, is a double-edged sword. So progress to what end? Are we making people's lives better? Are we creating efficiencies and economies of scale? Or are we inadvertently, or sometimes even deliberately, creating chasms of inequity? So all of those are really interesting challenges to tackle. But the constant is change. And what do you do with that change and how you respond to change it makes the difference in whether you're going to be a leader in the industry, advancing innovation, new ideas, progress, or if you're going to use change in a less humanitarian way, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And I, it sounds like from a, a person who has worked alongside you, that no matter how constant that change is, um, I know many of our discussions when we were sort of traveling around the world <laughs> was around the cultural side of that change, right? So the fact that culture plus change go hand in hand, you can't do one without the other. Um, and I remember you, you, you had this term that I now see other people using, but you said we, we had a, a company that was merging and we were constantly being bought out and sold and you know put back together. Um, and you used to say like, we haven't really completed the merger when it came to the cultures because we had those different sort of companies that had their own cultures and own teams and dynamics coming into one team that had to sell, um, execute and sort of um, operate as one. And 
most of our problems, as you remember, were people <laughs> um, yeah. and not really sort of the technology side of it. But I'm curious, um, you having sort of seen all of these different industries and different organizations, is that true, um, you know, or truer than maybe just the instance where we work together? Do you see that problem or that that being common? I, I definitely do. And um, I, you see it, I, I've seen it in big tech as well as smaller consultancies, like, you know, where, where you yeah. and I shared our experiences. Um, I, I you, you think about Google and Google Cloud, and Google is a company that, for the most part, has grown up more organically than it has purposefully. And I, I would say the purposeful nature of its maturation has come probably in the last 10 years or so. And Google Cloud, um, for me, is, is one of the best examples of a purposeful growth initiative where you have a leadership organization that's looking for uh, the most experienced, the best, the brightest, across the tech ecosystem writ large. And as a result, you're pulling people in from multiple different cultures, multiple different geos, multiple different historical personal perspectives. And it's a real soup. And trying to find some cultural cohesion, it's, it's bumpy. Um, I, I think because of the legacy of Google's imprint, and, and we all came to Google, those of us who are relatively new, and I had come from Microsoft, we, we all came with different experiences. It's the unifying thread of what makes us great that is the hardest to define when you build a company that fast and put that many different people with that many different backgrounds and and orientations together in a in a pot it, it is literally it is a bubbling to borrow an analogy from one of our favorite foods chris a bubbling yes. gumbo <laughs> nice that's like gumbo i you can't ever take one thing away or distinguish one thing as being critical like when you when it's homemade i, I can't talk about store or restaurant made i don't but know it's homemade. I, don't know <laughs> yeah. about, I don't know about restaurant gumbo yeah, but homemade gumbo, <laughs> I know it's really hard to separate the ingredients and, you know, everything is critical and everything sort of blends. And there isn't one single thing that's great unless you add okra and that changes the whole thing. And you're like, but who did this? <laughs> that's, that's another religion we can get into later yeah, whether you add okra like to gumbo or not. But The religion um, of okra. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, I hear you. So no, that's that's really interesting because I I could imagine that you know, in tech, and this is just from my anecdotal experience, being a woman in tech typically presents another set of challenges that isn't true in some other industries as well as in um, companies that have um, sort of that uh, that pinnacle or that marking of being sort of the biggest and the baddest and the best. Um, so I'm curious to understand like. If you can talk more about that, because um, I can, I'm not a woman, but I have heard stories from women, especially in the tech space and the, the different treatment, but also the way opportunities are presented, the way conversations take place. It is a little bit of a, a different experience from maybe a, a man. That's a great question. And it's, it's layered and it's complicated. Um, as a woman who, I mean, I started my professional journey in the 80s, so I'm, I'm old. And we, no matter what industry you were in, and, and I'll, I'll lead us into tech, but mm -hmm. we had so few role models. And, you know, I'm going back to the days where you were expected to wear pantyhose and skirts to the office. I mean, please. <laughs> it's 98 degrees out, 110% humidity, and you want me to wear what? Um, so, it, you know, we, we've come from a time where uh, we behave the way we were thought to behave. And we put our professional personas forward based on what men presented. And so our behaviors flowed from that. And, and, 
there's such a conflict there because men can be aggressive and they're applauded and rewarded for it. If a woman is aggressive, then she's the B word. So, and I think we've, we've come a little bit further away from that. I think we've learned how to be assertive without having to be aggressive. Um, we've learned to develop confidence from what we know about ourselves from within, or certainly I can say I have, but, but it took me two decades to get there. Um, in tech in particular, because it, it is, it, it is largely a male dominated field and uh, Google actually just released their, their latest um, DEI report and we're making progress, but we are still an organization that is largely dominated by males and mostly white males. Um, and that has just kind of been, you, you know, it, it has been the status quo for so long because companies are harvesting from the same schools, the same profiles, and our internal, you know, maybe unconscious biases uh, attract us to people who seem like us. So if you have white men in hiring authority positions, they're going to be hiring people that feel more like themselves. And, and it, it becomes difficult if you problem solve differently, as I think many women do. You approach problems differently. You approach leadership slightly differently. Um, you may even approach, if you're a technical woman uh, in business, you, you may uh, approach product development and coding differently. And I, I think we are just still not there yet in understanding how those differences are a strength versus uh, something that makes us feel uncomfortable because not everybody's, you know, running in the same direction. Um, it kind of goes back to that gumbo analogy that, you know, it takes a shrimp and a clam and an oyster. Okay. Nobody puts clams in gumbo, but yeah, you know, well. it, yeah, no, <laughs> but it, it really takes all of those ingredients. And the most important piece of advice I would have for younger women coming up is don't look to the men for your role models. Even if you don't see a woman role model, who's nearby or in your immediate group, find one. Uh, look for ways to network and uh, gain mentorship from other women who can really help you see another way forward. Uh, because for me, for the longest time, um, I just acted like a man. I thought that was how you, how you succeeded. And it, it works for a while. But I think eventually you start to realize that your authenticity has been degraded as, as a result of that. Yeah. I know personally for me, I, I'll share my experience. But when I look back at my career, whenever I had a woman leader, I grew significantly in all senses of the word, right? Financially, uh, developmental-wise, skill set-wise, exposure. Like It was always a situation where... Um, I knew that if I was sort of being led by a woman, it was a more positive experience for me, right? Mm. And I'm not discounting any of the male leaders. It's just when in comparison, my growth was way more pronounced and significant under female leaders. And um, I think it's important for listeners to hear that because it's, it's I have not heard other men come out and say those types of things, but I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal for saying that. I'm just saying... Um, typically in business schools and where sort of students are getting uh, introduced to the business world, your HR professors and marketing professors are women and like your operations and business, like you sort of see those um, different, right. um, <laughs> you get conditioned, right? Um, right? And so having strong female leaders early in my career sort of removed that um that exposure that I think some other folks have when it comes to business world where you see more men, you know, sitting in leadership and decision-making roles. Um, and so personally, like in listening to you, but also having been led by you, I can honestly attest to like the benefit of having, you know, a woman leading, making decisions because, you know, as you called out all of those unique things, the thing that I will also add is communication. Now, research shows that women are better communicators than men. That is 
is not something I need to argue, <laughs> right? If you disagree, you disagree, but research has already proven that. Um, and when you add that layer of you know communication, you start to get that inclusion element going. You start to get you know active listening going. You start to you know as you said, when you go solve problems differently, when your communication skills are more advanced or better, you have more tools to access when it comes to resolving conflict, when it mm -hmm. comes to including others, when it comes to traveling to or visiting other geos where you might have to understand what's happening before you can really contribute. Um, so you may talk second and listen first, right? Um, but you see those things are in eight. Um, in women, and this is not again to discount men. Some, some men have these skills as well, um, but it's just research has proven, and even my anecdotal experience has shown that those things contribute to growth for everyone, including the organization. Yeah, I think that's right, and I, I think uh, studies from both McKinsey and Harvard have um, revealed that companies with more women leaders at the top. Uh, making financial decisions, making investment decisions, making product roadmap decisions tend to have a longer uh, horizon um, mm -hmm. yeah. revenue success, if you, you know, financial success, sorry. Uh, yeah. Men tend to be short. <laughs> yeah, no, men tend to be short-term thinkers. I remember going to a conference and um, a a presenter was going over the differences between men and women in leadership positions, and this was like a global conference. Um, and they were telling historical stories to sort of show, you know, social proof of these theories. And you know, um, in the 1950s and 40s, when the men were off to war, women had to take over or lead businesses and homes. Um, and that's when you saw lifespans increase. That's when you saw a lot of investment into colleges and education, right? Like you started to see societies as a whole advance because women were making the decisions while men were at war. Um, men back in the home, again, going out to bars, alcohol purchases, like those those kind of short-term um, wins and sort of uh, values and gains were prioritized um, when men started coming back into the homes and into businesses um, and sort of... Uh, meeting quarter goals versus annual or five-year plans were also prioritized, which is why Wall Street is the way it is. We don't need to go and dissect that. That's a whole nother <laughs> That's a whole nother thing. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, there's a flip side to that too. And I, I will mm -hmm. say that men historically tend to be uh, bigger risk takers than women. And, and I like the fact of having a balance where, mm -hmm. you know, you may have uh, a colleague who's chomping at the bit to go do something that's fairly heavy uh, on the risk side. I, I think if women are able to enter into a dialogue that is a more balanced risk reward assessment, I think collectively we tend to make mm -hmm. better decisions. Um, you know, there's a difference between rushing headlong, you know, into the riptide versus like, well, there's a way we can do that. Um, if we build this device uh, quickly, we might have longer term success and penetrate rather than getting knocked back over and over and over again, sometimes just to give up. Um, and also learning from those failures. I, I think um, I think women are a little better at that. And that may be because of our historical roles as the primary caregivers to our children and our aging parents. Um, you just, I think you have a greater tolerance for uh, one step forward, a half a step back. Experience mm. mm. like that. Something you said earlier, really, I really wanted to, to ask about because, you know, at Love as a Business Strategy, we're constantly, you know, focused on culture and, 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 and behaviors around culture. And one thing we, we end up, one of our outcomes um, that you'll hear a lot is we want people to be able to bring their whole selves to work. Um, we say that a lot. We believe in it. That's um, it's the unspoken, sometimes spoken goal of all, all that we do. Um, I heard you say earlier that, you know, for 20, 20 or so years of your career, you had to essentially be someone else um, or be a man. And I'm curious, like, are would you say today you're able to be yourself or bring your whole self to work? And if so, I have so many parts of this question. First that, and then and then how, um, and how would others, like what do you think attributed to that and what's the key for a, a woman in tech or just a, a woman in general to, to overcome some of that culture-wise? 
I am able to bring my whole self to work today. Um, I, I will ask Chris to keep me honest, but I definitely tried to do it uh, as long ago as, what was that, eight, nine years ago? Yeah, yeah. 2013, yeah. 2012. Yeah. Um, I had figured out how to do it by then. And it, it really took for me getting out of the corporate milieu and starting my own consulting practice. And I realized that in order to win business, I was going to have to be authentic and that I would be selling myself, not necessarily what I was capable of doing. Um, people buy people before they buy products and services. They, they need to have that level of trust. Uh, so they need to feel that there's a sincerity coming through. And, and I think that was the tipping point for me where, you know, I wasn't influenced so much by all of these, you know, these other actors. I really was pretty self-reliant. And once you get into that rhythm, it's, it's hard to go back. Although, you know, I did go back into a corporate environment um, after that. And I'm, I'm just, I, I don't think I've ever gone back, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, but it isn't, it's not easy. Uh, and I would say particularly, and uh, Chris knows I shared this article with him. There was recently an article uh, in the Harvard Business Review about the dangers of an overly nice culture. Uh, and there's been quite a bit written about that recently. You know, what, what does that mean? Um, and so is your authentic self a nice person? Is it an honest person? Are you overly frank? Are you assertive? I mean, you really, you have to decide for yourself what it is. And it isn't really, it's not about getting people to like you. Um, and I, I don't mean to take us down a rabbit hole. And I, I, I'm worried that maybe I have here gone down <laughs> a little bit of a rat hole, but it, mm. there's, it's, what is the balance between your authentic self and your nice self I mean, your authentic self is just not nice all the time. You know, you're, you're going to disagree with people. And so there, there is a point to this circle that I'm in, which is, I, I think particularly in a post, well, we're not out of the woods yet, but it, it, getting close to a post pandemic world, we hope at least, um, there has been an emphasis in a lot of cultures, particularly in big tech to, well, let's think about our employees well-being and, um, let's let's make sure they can bring their whole selves to work and let's make sure that they're able to deal with family and other kinds of personal demands while at the same time, you know, showing up for the task at hand. And, and I think that has pushed some companies into this overly nice area where I, I think that tends to put us in positions where we're just, we're not being as truthful and authentic with one another because we're focused on let's be nice. Mm -hmm. And I apologize if that was a super circuitous um, <laughs> ramble, but. No, 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 it's really good. Actually, you're, you're speaking my language because I love yeah. what you, I love what you're saying. I think it's, it's incredibly important to talk about these things, um, whether it's, just about you know women in the workplace, but also just this nice nasty issue is a big mm -hmm. problem when it comes to what we're facing today in the world in terms of just um, a company's own self-awareness of their own culture. Because the most dangerous part of that nice nastiness is that it makes you feel like, or at least to some people, especially people in decision-making positions, that your culture is good because they associate a good culture with niceness like everyone mm -hmm. gets along and on the surface we're all happy and holding hands and singing kumbaya um when really like you said i love what you just said that you know bring your true self to work you know the tr our true selves have a lot of not nice parts of, like that's the reality like we there's a bunch of parts of us that are real that aren't nice um and i think that's so that's so powerful it's so important thank you for sharing that you well, know, there's, I, there's a tether that goes back to this idea of change, too, that I, I think if, if we never disagree or if we 
build a consensus-driven culture where we're just, all right, we've got to get everybody on the same page. No, why? 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 <laughs> why? Why? I, I mean, can't we agree just to disagree and then let's commit to the outcome and, and go forward and do our best? Um, I, I think when we don't air our differences and we don't have open debate, um, even if it's heated, as long as it doesn't get ugly and personal, but heated debate, you don't move the needle. It takes far too long to make decisions. Sometimes decisions just don't get made at all, and you wind up in this black hole of inertia. It, it's just, I think it's critically important to disagree. And that being nice to each other doesn't mean uh, we, we all, to your point, Jeff, uh, skip hands and sing, or skip hands, <laughs> hold hands and skip, skip. <laughs> and, and sing. <laughs> Hold hands and jump rope and like that's that's not what it's about. It's it's um, it's and it that goes back to what you were saying, Chris, about active listening. Really listen. You know, you're saying something that I fundamentally disagree with. How can I open myself up enough to let that in, and and see where it goes? Yep. And I think. Um, you told me to hold you honest <laughs> when you started to answer this question. And I can honestly say that working with you, you were always, you know, I would all like, at times it was funny because that's my style of humor, but you were just frank and sort of just <laughs> blunt with things, especially when you were in a safe space where it's like either just you and me or you, me and a few others, like you never held back. Even if you're like, I, we we're making this decision. I disagree with it. This is not what I wanted. But unfortunately, it's something that I do have to enforce or we do have to go along with, right? Like you were always frank in those manners in that regard. Um, and you were also always yourself. Like you always, like you told stories of your mistakes. And I think that that's a rare thing for leaders to do, right? Like, and some, some of them are just hilarious and I don't want to put you on the spot and make you share them here. But, you know, when I recall like the things that you shared in terms of what you've done in your career and like, well, some people today might consider, you know, fodder for entertainment, but it was just, it was like that you actually did those things and you don't mind sharing that. And I can honestly tell you those kind of stories made it that much easier for me to be self-aware in moments where I could see myself doing the same thing, but because you have shared that you've already done the mistake, I don't have to commit it or I don't have to make it because it doesn't lead to the outcomes that perhaps your flesh might tell you in the moment. Um, and so I, I just remember you doing those kind of things and sharing those kinds of stories and those kind of vulnerable moments in your own career and life throughout our time working together that made your authenticity something that I never questioned. I never questioned whether you were telling me the truth when we spoke ever. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think it's essential for people to acknowledge their mistakes. Um, I, I had something happen recently uh, with somebody on my team, relative newcomer to the team, newcomer to the company, was super passionate about a specific practice area um, that he wanted to pursue. And I felt like, you know, we had so much white noise going on and everybody's pet projects that, you know, like this, here's one more and we don't have room for it. And I wasn't convinced that it belonged in our charter. It, it, it mm -hmm. felt to me like this particular initiative was, that should be in somebody else's organization. That doesn't really belong in ours. And he was adamant. And um, he may not have been as, as diplomatic about advancing his cause <laughs> as I might've liked him to be. Uh, but, uh, and if you're out there listening, you know who you are. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he, he just kept doing it. He kept advancing his cause incrementally and demonstrating the value in, in, his, in his approach and his rationale for wanting to, to spin up this particular uh, practice area. And he was right. Uh, I mean, as it turned out, I, I was wrong. I was too narrowly focused. Um, it, our customers, there was demand for this in the field, um, both from our wider sales organization, but also from our customers. And he is now in the process of building out a practice for this. And I had to go back to him and, and apologize and say, hey, you made a believer out of me. It was a rough ride. 
Uh, and, you know, I said some things that I, I regret, like, get off of this. It's, it ain't going anywhere. You're, you're dreaming. Um, <laughs> I was wrong. And I, I think if, if I hadn't been able to say that to him, what, what, what does that say about me? Um, this is something that's going to benefit um, the entire practice. And, and, you know, ultimately, I hope all of all of Google Cloud and I, you know, and that's a mild thing. I've done some really crazy things like stand on desks and scream at, you know, very important people at uh, big that's television networks. That is my favorite. <laughs> like that, <laughs> when it comes to any leader story, that one is my absolute favorite. Not that we should have favorites of people's mistakes, but just like that story was just so, oh, it's so good. It's just, uh, you know, it's and this, so this is, oh my gosh. And this is an example of, you know, the results of looking to others to frame and shape your leadership style. And in television in particular, um, and I think this has become nowhere as more revealed as it has been in the wake of the Me Too movement, a lot of bad behavior is tolerated, um, just in the creative industries in, in general. And I watched, I was working for a major television network and I was watching a lot of incredibly bad behavior have absolutely no consequences afterwards. Tantrums being thrown and, you know, people being publicly humiliated and berated in front of colleagues and peers. And, you know, I thought, well, this is working like so-and-so's got the corner office and well, why do I need to behave? Um, so I was trying to uh, get something on the air, on the digital air, that was controversial and not really in line with standards and practices. And the head of, of business affairs for our division uh, basically came in to tell me the news that like, look, you, you gotta find another way to frame this thing up. It's not gonna fly the way it is. And I exploded. Uh, I first climbed up onto my chair and this is a guy who this is a classic power move, by the way. Like, I'm higher than you. You know, I'm sitting in the higher chair. I'm standing on the higher step. This guy was sitting on the sofa in my office. Yes, you have sofas when you work for a media company. <laughs> and first I stood up on my chair. And then not, that not being high enough, I literally got up onto my desk and was screaming and calling this guy horrible names i i mean f bombs everywhere i, I mean f all y'all go back to the trailer you crawled out of and you know whatever berg in indiana you came from it, it just awful it was so awful just you know and the horrible thing is afterwards i just i felt great it's like well i showed him you know and the thing is, my staff were horrified. Like they were in the next room. They'd never seen me do anything like this. And it was, you could have heard a pin drop. They were silent. And, you know, I walk into the conference room and it's like, well, I showed him. And everybody's just like, wow, I wonder if she's going to get fired tomorrow. And, and here, here are, are two important lessons. One is a complete and utter lack of self-awareness on my part. Utter. Um, and in turn, showing a complete and utter disrespect for someone who was just trying to do their job. Uh, and, you know, the standards and practice guidelines, you know, came not from him. They weren't out of his head. It's a body of, of work. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I showed myself weak and ineffective in, in front of my staff. And I nearly got fired. Now, would a man have been fired? Probably not. Um, but I nearly got fired for that. And honestly, it's a miracle that I wasn't fired. And I should have been fired. And I had to eat crow for a long time after that. And this great trajectory that I was on and, you know, getting headcount, budget and resources came to a screeching halt. Because, you know, there was some very real uh, question around whether or not I had uh, the professionalism and maturity to handle any additional responsibility. 
So um, that was a turning point for me as well. And it was not too long after that, actually, that I, I, it was maybe a couple of years later that I started my own consulting practice. And that episode has come back to haunt me many times when I've been angry at a colleague or a customer or a client um, that, you know, Chris, you, you, you said something to me years ago that I, you know, I, I, I adopted it into my mantra. This is like a credo for me. You have to meet people where they are. And it's not that I had never heard it before. I had never heard it the way you said it and applied it in your daily life, in your daily interactions with staff and customers. I've never forgotten it. I have internalized it. And it's something I failed to do that day that I stood up on the desk and absolutely humiliated myself. Um, and it's, it is just, it's just, yeah. Yeah. Well, like, and what I, I, again, that story, it's hilarious. It would be a great reality TV show moment. I like, I'm waiting for a real house. <laughs> it's just like getting there and do that. But it was a story that has stuck with me ever since you told me that story. Not because I'm like, ha ha ha, Catherine did that. That's funny. But just anybody can do that. Like if you can do it, then that means that I could get to a place where I lose my cool and I do something like that. And for me, <clears throat> that story really made me sort of introspect because I'm like, it's not about whether I would do it. It's like, what would make me do that? Because that's the moment that I need to be really self-aware in. And I think few people take the time to take stock of, don't question or don't dismiss something that you do. Oh, I would never do that. Like I, act, I like to ask myself, what would make me do that? <laughs> because well, and you that's know a what stronger it, case. Yeah, for, I think that's, you know. that is, that's really perceptive. And I think it boils down to a lack of confidence. Mm -hmm. And I would never have said of myself at that time that I was not a confident person. Um, but that is, that's the truth. I, I believe that I have become more grounded and more balanced because I have developed confidence in my decision-making ability in my ability to execute. I'm just much more confident and confidence gives you the courage to listen to an opposing point of view, internalize it and figure out, well, do I have a response to this or is this actually a better position to take? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. In, no. in, my, in my experience also, like events like that, like the huge kind of uh, boiling overs are usually built up over time not so much in that exact moment, right? And yeah. I think it connects back to what we talked about earlier. When you work or you exist in an environment of artificial harmony or a place that values harmony over honesty, as we say, Chris, mm -hmm. um, you're constantly suppressing something. You're constantly in a state of holding back yeah. and not being yourself. And that's where those moments come from. I wasn't there, obviously, but I can only imagine your, your outrage was, you know, more than just that day's events, right? It was, it was a comp, uh, you know, a compilation of, of a lot of other uh, in, in feelings of injustice and other things that, mm -hmm. that have built up in that position. And I, I think it's so key for people to kind of connect those dots because when you don't, when you, when you go, oh yeah, I can be honest over harm, but what we mean, when we mean honesty, when we say, when we promote honesty over harmony, what we really mean is that, hey, Right now, when we just had a conversation and it was just a little bit awkward, let's stop and talk about that. Let's let's stop and just be like, hey, you said some stuff, you know, it didn't rub me the right way. And I, I, maybe it's nothing, but let's talk about it. Because that conversation right there releases that pressure valve that day. And if you can build a culture that can value that, because it's so much easier to say, hey, we're at time, this meeting's over, we'll see you tomorrow. And you know, all night you're thinking, man, was he trying to, you know, was he trying to like put me down? Was that like an underhanded comment? Was that like, and, and it just eats away at you. And then one day that person comes in your office and says something and you're up on a table. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it's just a, it's a really important connection. Yeah, no, I agree, Jeff. Like what you just said essentially in the way I'm interpreting it is that 
in overly nice cultures and in places where you can't be your authentic self, typically the language that is dominant is silence or offense or both where you are silent, but you are also walking away offended and not getting any clarity or resolution until that blow up happens or until yeah. that, that conflict becomes so great that now it's a team thing and it's beyond just the two people that it could have stayed with. Um, and that's sometimes what happens in those nice cultures where there's a blowout unexpectedly and everyone's like, what did I come from? What, what's going on? Right? Like, <laughs> and, and unfortunately, like, and what's unfortunate about it, Catherine, and I'm, I'm going to say this and some people might hate me for saying this, but typically it involves a woman. Hmm. And when you start putting on the biases that are oftentimes portrayed, portrayed against women about being too emotional, et cetera, right? Like when you have those types of blowups and blowouts in these nice cultures, it involves a minority or a woman, right? Like it's, it's, that's typically where you're going to see that conflict um, or that sort of that event explode to a degree where it becomes fodder for um, the office um, and something that becomes much bigger than it is. Um, and it's something that we rarely talk about because it's it one, it feels like we're sort of perpetuating that bias, but two, yeah, it's, it's something that there isn't a conversation where we can honestly say like, Hey, let's talk about all the factors that play in the situation because that requires honesty. Right. There's gender, there's race, there's socioeconomic status, there's education. There, like, there's all these other things that are at play in this moment. And we can't talk about it openly and honestly because it's going to make people uncomfortable or people are going to think that some card is being pulled um, from a minority perspective. Or, you know, people are going to think that, like, why can't we just move on from this and just forget about this? Because, mm. you know, harmony is so much more comfortable for us. Like, if we just sort of let bygones be bygones, then we don't have to deal with this ever again. And all of those things are yeah. are problematic because it sits in that culture, right? And it becomes the expected way to deal with things, not a, a sort of a planned way to or protocol on how to resolve conflict first interpersonally with one to one mm -hmm. versus in a group in mass. That's it's really interesting uh, that that you you raise the issue of um, diversity being a factor and in how these kinds of episodes are, are viewed and how they're treated. And, and you think about uh, companies, whole industries that are dominated by men um, who may have, and I'm stereotyping here, so I apologize yeah. in advance. Yeah. You know, there's the whole sports culture of, I'm gonna tear you up on the field, but <laughs> I'm gonna pat you on the back and we're gonna go have beers together afterward that I, I do think um, starts early with as boys are, are growing up and is probably less the case for girls. I mean, certainly, and I wasn't a sports playing kid. I, I mean, I was forced onto the field hockey team when I was 15. Um, <laughs> I, I do think you learn that kind of all's fair in, in love and war that for whatever reason, has historically been more difficult for women. Um, maybe we take things more personally. Maybe we internalize things a little differently. Maybe there's more of an emotional factor to it. Um, and I think historically that has been viewed as a negative rather than, oh, this is just a different response. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's it's even worse for black women. Uh, I, yes. I, it's oh, absolutely. It's so much worse. Um, you know, there's that whole, well, she's a hysterical black woman. It, it, it is so awful. And, and I have had um, African-American female colleagues talk to me pretty frankly uh, about this and mm -hmm. how it has driven them out of tech because it is so heavily dominated by white males still today mm -hmm. um, into other, other careers entirely. And yeah. You know, where maybe they feel a, a more welcoming atmosphere. Um, there's a, a, a broader ecosystem of tolerance for diverse uh, points of view and responses. Mm -hmm. it, it's, um, it's a, man, this is heavy stuff, Chris. Yeah. No, it is. And it's like, and I, I'm sorry, Jeff, I, I'll be honest, like it's something that rarely gets discussed because when you start moving away from sort of the things that are I see, which is like the gender, the race, and you get into the behaviors, like 
oftentimes many office cultures don't really deal with the behaviors of the individuals, regardless of the person, right? And if you mm-hmm. don't have a foundation of expectation around behavior, it's really hard to police. And what happens is, is that when extraneous or extreme circumstances arise, the standards now change, right? Just like you mentioned, like, oh, white men, sports culture, all swear in love and war, you know, their response if they throw a chair is like, oh, well, he's just angry. He's upset. That'll pass, right? But if a person of color or a woman does it, she's crazy, a crazy B word, right? (laughs) Like, you know, um, if the minority does it, oh, like, mm, they're clearly going to hit somebody or it's going to turn into a violent situation quickly right right. and yeah and then the the consequences are not even or equal Mm -hmm. right that's yeah you're you're absolutely right those are those are hard things to talk about and and we should be talking about them more often Mm -hmm. yeah and so and that's and so when we talk about like women in tech and you know i would often say minorities in tech as well Mm -hmm. like they do have a very different experience my sister works for has worked for several large tech companies um in her past um and i hear the stories and i've overheard the calls even in this pandemic because we live together right like the tone that people can take i'm like is that is that what we're doing now? Like, is that is that, <laughs> yeah. is that what? Because I can't do that, right? Like, you know, as yeah. as a person of color, like I was always taught, like <laughs> you you can't have any strikes. That's what mom always told told my sister. Now, like, you already have one strike. Don't add any more. Like, you have to, you know, be better. You have to keep your cool. You have to make sure that you don't, you know, cut your eyes and do all these things, right? Like, that was always in in sort of infused in our upbringing, um, because our consequences are not the same. You know, having someone to go to bat for us or daddy or grandfather, you know, at the top of the company making decisions and protecting it like that, we don't have that cover. And so- That is, that is, it's it's heartbreaking to hear this. Mm -hmm. And I'm cognizant that it is real. Um, I I have a colleague, an African-American colleague who uh, said in, in a leadership offsite not long ago, he said, I come to every job with a demerit. I, I come with that. I come with a disadvantage. I come with the knowledge that the white hiring manager across the table from me is giving me a chance. And, I, you know, to hear that from a super talented, incredibly valuable, wonderful, creative human being um, who deserves to be where he is today, it's, I, I think this is where, you know, those of us who, who aren't African-American or Asian-American need to understand how to be better allies. Um, mm-hmm. it, and, you know, I, I, I once said to a, a friend of mine, a longtime friend of mine, um, uh, an African-American woman. I said, how can I be a better ally? And she goes, man, I am sick and tired of you white people coming and asking me. <laughs> Just do it. You know what to do. You know, wh- why are you asking me for the blueprint? Um, Just look around at your behaviors and look around at the behaviors of the people around you. And it's, yeah. it's, um, I feel like we are getting better, mm-hmm. but we have a long way to go. Yeah. And for me, I always say like, start with self-awareness. Like, as she's like, if you're aware of how, when you're triggered, what conversations trigger you when someone else around you might be getting triggered, right? Like those things, but make it a lot easier to know when to sort of step in. Right. And there's different ways to sort of ally, right. You can sort of move your seat closer to the person who's being sort of marginalized in the moment. Mm -hmm. You can reiterate their point and say, I agree with what, they, what that person just said. Like, we should, mm-hmm. we should reconsider that, right? Like, you can use your voice literally and extend it to them. Like, there's mm-hmm. all these small little things that you can do that aren't these big, major, like, behavioral shifts or even, like, you know, extra time or effort or money. Um, but it's just being one present of mind saying, like, hmm, that doesn't feel right. Mm. I know that person and their normal facial reactions, they seem a little bit off. Maybe I do need to jump in. And what I'll do is I'll just repeat what they said and mm-hmm. give them credit for it. Or yeah. I will like move my seat next to them to show that I'm in support of what they're going through right now, but I might not speak because they might not need my voice per se. Right. right. Like 
I might, you might sort of, you know, invite them to have a, have your seat instead like, Hey, actually I realize I'm not needed here. This person can handle it. Right. And so you defer your power to them and you walk out of the room, right? Like all of those small things become big moments for that allyship response. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think those are the things that are really hard to, for people of color or people who are marginalized to give to someone asking to ally and say like, you know, just imagine your child being taken advantage of in the moment. Like chances are you might overreact, but also if you realize that it's someone of power, you might have different things that you would do to still put yourself between the, that person and whoever is taking advantage of them. Right. And so I think it's thinking about how we can do that. And I think even for women in tech, there's still a need for allyship around, you know, that community, whether they're women of color or white women, because they do have those, the same needs when it comes to, you know, approximating having men in power, sort of lend their voices, give up their seats, you know, give up, you know, their voices or their share of voice inside of meetings to be like, actually, Catherine, you know this subject way better than I do. Can you can you cover this for for this meeting, or can you explain, or can you share that thought that you were talking about yesterday with me? Because I think the team needs to hear it, right? Those small little cues that welcome you into the conversation, but also give you a platform and give you that comfort to be like, not only did he invite me to speak, he confirmed that what I was speaking about is smart, is worth it, is mm-hmm. like validated. So you you have that double confidence going into whatever yeah. that invited conversation might be. Those are really incredibly down-to-earth, practical pieces of advice. And I hope everybody yeah. thinks about that. They're easy things to do. Yeah. Chris, and again, something you said. Go ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. Something you said just really, I think is so important to kind of just, I just want to touch on because you talked about basically referencing the whole picture, the whole story, which is hard to talk about when it comes to these more complex mm-hmm. scenarios. And I think it, I just want to bring up that, you know, it's really, it's so important that we kind of see what's going on in these spaces when it comes to what someone just simply called DEI um, and things like that, because we have, I'll just give an example. We have these situations where there's people being marginalized, there's non-dominant groups that are actually experiencing a work environment, you know, you, like Catherine, you, you very, you know, clearly um, shared your experiences of just having to be somebody else. And we talked about how that can boil up and bubble up and become something. And the problem is, I think, I think the, the world, as, as much progress as we're making, is still seeing this. There's these two binary results that come out at the end of that. One is either that stereotype is perpetuated or something, you know, a blow up happens and it gets brushed off as, as something that further worsens the, the, the entire cause. But the, the, the alternative is also that now it's just a, a DEI issue. Now it's just like, I want to be an ally, so I'm going to like I'm going to go analyze every black person I know and make sure I can be very careful how I act around every black person I know. When, to be honest, it needs to be about each and every person. Like it's not how do you treat black people; it's why would you treat anybody that way? Like why would you behave that way to any one human, you know, at all? And I think that 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 conversation is lost, right? It's lost in these the minutia of these individual scenarios and he said, she said, and we're not stepping back. And Chris, you said that, that self-awareness is where to begin allyship. I, that's where I want to, you know, I'm trying to, I want that message to be clear for people because, um, you know, DEI is this term that we just kind of use to like, be like, let's just be aware of these, like people see it as this, like this more, almost more divisive than it is meant to be when really true inclusion is actually kind of starting at yourself, my own behaviors, Oh, mm-hmm. did I do that? Do I, when, am I doing something subtly against women that I didn't realize? Am I doing something? And this, every, we all have room to grow in that. We all have yeah. stereotypes and ingrained things. You, earlier, when you're talking about how we raise young boys, I mean, that's, that's in me. I, I have a lot to learn and explore about how I view, you know, the cutthroat male in the workplace and what I need to be. Like, that's all something I can explore. And that journey moves me further along inclusion than looking at every other race and gender and understanding how they want allyship to look like. Because I'm not, I'm not saying that's important. Allyship is extremely important, but I just think it's so important that people start seeing behavior at the center, um, humanistic behavior at the center of true inclusion. And so I, I, I'm sorry that diverted. I just wanted to put that point out. No, not, I think that's such an important thought. And, you know, 
your your reference to DEI just sort of becoming this this boilerplate catch-all for uh, creating roadmaps for behaviors or uh, <laughs> uh, 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 principles and standards, you know, by which a company wants to organize itself. It, it, unfortunately, I, I see this a lot, uh, that it's, it's a well-meaning initiative. The principles are well-articulated and they're well-meaning, but they run the risk of further othering the groups that they are designed to help. Mm -hmm. um, particularly, and I, I think Jeff, you, you referenced something you know, like we're going to target certain individuals or groups, and I'm going to figure out, you know, how to be better here. When the underlying problems are typically culturally systemic, um, mm -hmm. and and not even maliciously so, just they're just a fact of unconscious bias and the way companies have organically grown up. So putting a layer of a, you know, a DEI cover on top of it isn't going to change the underlying challenges if you don't go deep. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, and really understanding, back to Chris's earlier point, this notion of personal accountability and personal awareness, rather than targeting whole groups and saying, you know, well, we're going to we're going to go out there and make sure every African-American inside of company X um, feels great and isn't a flight risk. You know, that to me yeah. is a little problematic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is like, what about the, the LGBTQIA players? <laughs> like, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, like, like, who are we not including? In the in that? Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. 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 No, like every human should be should feel like they belong. So we should look after everybody. Nobody should be a flight risk, right? That's the ideal organization. And that's yeah. technically what the benefit of hierarchy is, is that it allows for everyone to be taken care of by someone um, who is in an authority position. Uh, but unfortunately, um, hierarchy has become more of a negative and sort of a, a detriment to organizations more so than a value add because it's not used in the right way. It's used to manage communication and power. Um, but not care and love and compassion and endearment among your teams. I really love that analogy. Um, thinking of leadership as as caretaking is mm -hmm. is really a, a, I hate to use the word nice, but it is nice. A nice <laughs> a nice picture. Um, yeah. I hadn't really thought about it that way. And I, I don't want it to be, you know, paternalistic and like, yeah. I'm your mother, you know, yeah. I'm your mother. I'm here to take <laughs> care of you. But, but really just this idea of caregiving uh, yes. and caretaking mm -hmm. uh, stewardship. Um, yes. still, is, there's still honesty in there. There's yeah. still sort of accountability, but you like, I mean, the CEO of Google should not have to try and personally take care of all of you know, the hundred and something thousand employees that Google has. Mm -hmm. but that's the point of hierarchy is that someone should, right? At some point, someone should be taking care of a small group within that 140. And if you have enough of that scaled, you can have a system and an organization with hierarchy that cares and everyone knows that they are cared for, regardless of where they are in the organization. And and it does come from the top, you know, yes. that kind of uh genuine desire to ensure the well-being of the entire company comes from the top. And I do have to give Google some props here, particularly during the pandemic. Um, it has been top of mind across the entire senior leadership organization. Um, how are people feeling? Are people feeling overwhelmed? Are they stressed? Are they burned out? Do they have time to care for their families? Um, have they been hit by a hardship? because of illness or a, a lack of resources for their families. I, I have to, to say that that was surprising for me. And I had not been in a corporate environment where that level of attention, genuine attention, it, you know, including extra time off and global holidays that just pop up for no reason other than there's an awareness that there's added need at this time. That is, is unusual. I, I know there are other companies um, who are undertaking similar kinds of initiatives, 
Um, but, you know, for a company that is historically known for hard driving, hard working, focused, um, a focused hard driving culture, this was, um, it was welcome. Awesome. That's, nice. That's good to hear. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the time has flown. Uh, <laughs> uh, I just looked up at the clock. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's an episode. But Catherine, I want to thank you so much for coming today and really being very open and sharing so much about yourself, so much of your experiences. It was really a really powerful conversation for me to be able to hear from you and your lived experiences, but also have these discussions is really good kind of opening ups of about uh, how we see the world, how we see the workplace. It's given me a lot to think about. So thank you so much for, for joining us today, Catherine. Thank you for having me. This has been a real thank pleasure. You. Always a pleasure to spend time with Chris. <laughs> thank you. Likewise. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, that too, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for being here as well. <laughs> I, see him, I see him every day, okay? I'm going to take, take that for granted. I take that for granted. Yes, you do. Yeah. So, <laughs> Well, no, thank audience, you so much for having me. It was a it was a real pleasure. No, thank you, thank you. And to the audience, of course, we are posting every, uh, new episodes every Wednesday. Um, and you can, of course, read about our story, our mission uh, to bring humanity back to the workplace by checking out our book. Uh, it, uh, you can visit loveisabusinessstrategy.com for more information on that. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave a review and share with your friends. Um, and with that. Thank you again, and we will see everybody next week.